Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thanks for joining us today as we head back into our investigation, coming back to the climax, the turning point in our story of Lord John Bingham, Lucky Lucan, the seventh Earl of Lucan. Things have been rough. Our boy has been on a long losing streak, both on the tables and in his life. His divorce and custody battles have been going pretty badly, but Lucky seems to have made a plan. He's going to deal himself a new hand, and certainly he thinks this time it will be a winning one. Let's investigate. made it into our story, the disappearing act of Lord Lucky Lucan. This is our turning point for John, whose luck is very much about to run out. It is November 7th, 1974. It is a Thursday night, which is regularly Nanny's Night Out. Dominic Dunn writes, what is Nanny's Night Off? It appeared to be a casual question. Any number of affluent fathers separated or divorced from their wives might have asked it during a visit with their child, Thursday. The child herself later told police that her father had asked her that. Little did she know what the aftermath of her answer would be. She was Lady Frances Bingham, then ten years old, and her father, whom she adored, and who adored her and her brother, Viscount Bingham, then aged eight, and her sister, Lady Camilla, then aged six, was Lord Lucan. I'm going to let our man Nick take you through the events of this night. Only he can write it the way he does, again from The Gentleman Vanishes from Vanity Fair. It was November 7th, 1974, the night after Salim Zilka's dinner, a Thursday nanny's night off. Lucan was then living in an apartment on Elizabeth Street, a short distance from the house he no longer shared with his wife and children at 46 Lower Belgrave Street in the fashionable SW1 section of London. He dressed in a turtleneck sweater and a brown sleeveless pullover and slacks. He wore gloves. He carried a canvas United States mail sack. Somewhere on his person, or possibly in the sack, were a 10-inch length of pipe wrapped in adhesive tape and a mask. He left behind in his apartment Millionaire's Islands, open at the page where he had stopped reading. He also left behind his wallet, his credit cards, his watch, and his identification. His plan was to return to the apartment after the deed was done bathe, change, and then meet four friends who were attending the theater for a late supper at the Claremont Club. Earlier, he had driven by the Claremont Club in his Mercedes and asked the doorman, who knew him well, if his friends had arrived yet, although it was only 8.30 and he knew they were not expected until 11. 
The trip to the club and the discussion with the doorman were obviously the foundations of an alibi, as had been his offer the previous evening to Salim Zilka and Mary Haley to deliver a parcel in two days' time. If everything went according to plan, by the end of the evening, the house on Lower Belgrave Street would once again be his, as would the Muse house behind it, and he would be able to give up his apartment on Elizabeth Street and move back in with his children. Over the past year, he had sought to establish his wife's madness with everyone who would listen to him. It would appear that she had vanished, run away, as she had once run away from a private psychiatric nursing home in which he had placed her. His last girlfriend, who was seeing him in the months prior to the murder, said to me, He told me horrifying stories about his wife. He told me that he gave his daughter Frances a kitten and that Lady Lucan strangled the cat and sent it back. I heard this bizarre allegation from several people. In another version, Lady Lucan beheaded the cat and sent it back. I did not, however, meet anyone who had actually seen the strangled or decapitated cat. The people with whom I spoke were shocked more by the story of a dead cat than by the bludgeoned body that would be found at the end of the night. Honestly, investigators, that's all of the tragedy in this story. Poor Sandra Rivet, the nanny, nine weeks on the job. She's got sisters. She has a family. A vibrant, lovely woman. She's just forgotten. She's our victim here. But John Bingham has a plan. He has gained inside knowledge of the routine of the home, and we know the disaster coming. Dunn will continue in his peace. Silently, he entered the five-story house, opening the door with his latch key. His wife and children were upstairs, watching the six-million-dollar man on television. He knew the family routine. He knew that after the program, the children would be sent upstairs to bed, and his wife would then come down to the kitchen, which was in the basement of the house, to make herself a cup of tea before bedtime. It was her habit. On the stairway to the basement, he took the light bulb out of the socket. Then he went down the stairs to the darkness of the kitchen and waited. Shortly after nine o'clock, the television program over, she descended the stairs, having tried the light switch and found it inoperative. At the bottom of the stairs, he hit her on the head with the pipe. She sank to her knees. He bludgeoned her again and again. A knife or gun would have been easier, quicker, and certainly cleaner. When you hit someone on the head with a pipe, the first hit only opens the skin up. It is after the second blow and the subsequent blows, if the heart is still pumping, that blood spurts. And blood spurted everywhere, in every direction. It was as if he wanted not only to kill her, but also to inflict pain. Then, mercifully, she was dead, and he began the task of putting her body into the canvas mail sack. He folded the body in two. Later, if all had gone according to plan, after he had established himself cleaned up and fastidious at the Claremont Club with his friends for supper, 
he would have loaded the mail sack with his wife's body in it into the trunk of the car he had borrowed from his unsuspecting friend, Michael Stoop, an inconspicuous Ford to replace his easily identifiable Mercedes, and driven it to the coast, where he would have carried it onto a boat, taken it into the English Channel, tied weights to it, and dumped it overboard. By the time anybody reported Lady Lucan missing, she would have been buried at sea. Seven Mile Bottom in the English Channel is the preferred spot for burials at sea. There are no currents, so a properly weighted body will go straight to the bottom and stay there. Taki Theodorakopoulos told me over lunch at 21 in New York that Lucan had made two test runs, driving a weighted bag from London to a coastal town, transferring the bag from the car to a boat, taking the boat out into the channel, and dumping the bag. This was confirmed to me by a detective in England. Everything was timed. Everything was planned. Everything was perfect. But never underestimate fate. It is for exactly that kind of line that you do have to love Dominic Dunn's writing. But never underestimate fate. Here, Lucky Lucan. What did Dunn say? Everything was timed. Everything was planned. Everything was perfect. But never underestimate fate. Lucky's fate here will take a turn. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Continuing from Dominic Dunn. From the top of the stairs, he heard a voice calling, Sandra, Sandra, what's keeping you? Sandra was the name of the nanny, whose night off it was supposed to have been. Sandra Rivet. The voice calling for Sandra from the top of the stairs was the voice of his wife, Lady Lucan, the object of his hatred, alive and well, impatient for her tea. And one of the most classic examples of mistaken identity ever, Lord Lucan, whose friends called him Lucky, had killed the wrong woman. They were both small, the nanny and the countess, both five feet two inches tall, Nanny had changed her night off to accommodate a boyfriend. Nanny had come down to the kitchen to make tea for her ladyship. Nanny had received the blows intended for Lady Lucan. Try to imagine the state of mind of a man who discovers he has just murdered the wrong person by finding himself face to face with the person he thought he had murdered whose body he thought he had just stuffed into a bag, whose wet, sticky blood he thought was all over him. Think of him gloved, sweatered, sweating, smelling, panicky, and probably drunk. It is easy to believe that he had reached a degree of madness and certainly desperation. What is Lucan to do? It's time to adjust to the hand that he has dealt himself 
What did Dominic Dunn say? Gloved, sweatered, sweating, smelling, panicky, and probably drunk. It is easy to believe he had reached a degree of madness and certainly desperation. Lucan will continue to choose his fateful path back to Dominic Dunn. He ascended the stairs, masked. His wife, seeing him, but not knowing it was he, screamed. Shut up, he cried out. With that, she recognized his voice and understood everything. Then he attacked her, grabbing her, thrusting three gloved fingers down her throat, strangling her, gouging her eyes and striking her with the same blunt instrument he had used to kill Nanny Rivet, hitting her on the head, causing her too to spurt blood, some of it on him. But this lady had a rage to live. Against all odds, she saved herself by fighting him, by reaching between his legs and squeezing his balls as hard as she could until he desisted. At the inquest, his balls were referred to as his private parts. The woman with whom her husband had tried to establish his mad acted with perfect sanity. She cajoled him. She calmed him down. She may have even told him, as has been reported, that she would help him. Their oldest child, Lady Frances, who had not yet gone up to bed, heard noises. The statement she later gave to a policewoman was the most graphic account we have of the violent incident. After a while, Mummy said she wondered why Sandra was taking so long. I said I would go downstairs and see what was keeping her, but Mummy said no, she would go down. Mummy left the room and left the door open. There was no light in the hall because the bulb didn't work. Just after Mummy left the room, I heard a scream. It sounded as if it came from a long way away. I thought that maybe the cat had scratched Mummy. I wasn't frightened by the scream, and I stayed watching TV. At about 9.05, I ran to the door and called Mummy, but there was no answer. At 9.05, the news was on TV, and Mummy and Daddy both walked into the room. Mummy was bleeding from her face and crying. Mummy told me to go upstairs. Daddy didn't say anything to me, and I said nothing to either of them. I only caught a glimpse of her. I don't know how much blood was on her face. As far as I can remember, Daddy was wearing a pair of dark trousers and an overcoat. I did not hear any conversation between Mummy and Daddy. I was on the bed when they came through the door. I didn't see any blood on Daddy's clothes. I wondered what had happened, but I did not ask. I went upstairs and got into bed and read my book. Lord Lucan became sufficiently quieted by the unexpected appearance of his daughter to go to the bathroom for a sponge to wipe the blood off his wife's head and face. Lady Lucan used this moment in the bathroom to bolt from the house and run down Lower Belgrave Street to the corner, 110 steps away, to a pub called the Plumber's Arms. The other telling of this particular part, a different view of this, comes from Lady Lucan. In her account, she recalls that her husband asked if she had any sleeping pills. They head upstairs. 
Lord Lucan will go to the bathroom to bring her the sleeping pills in order to presumably allow her to fall asleep so he can strangle her. Lady Lucan waits for her husband to go to the bathroom for him to turn the water on as he's filling a glass of water for her to take the pills. And this is where the two accounts line back up. Lady Lucan splits. It is the fastest run ever. She heads down the stairs and out the door, makes a quick left turn to the end of the block for safety. The Plumber's Arms is a local pub. She knows people will be there in the nine o'clock hour. There is a little difference in reporting there, but I'm going to go with Veronica's telling on this. But alas, Dominic Dunn will continue here with his writing with this sentence that I think sums it up either account you go with. Once again, she had bested her husband. Lady Frances's testimony continued. I didn't hear anything from downstairs. After a little while, I don't know how long, I heard Daddy calling for Mummy. He was calling Veronica, where are you? I got up and looked down and saw Daddy coming out of the nursery. He went into the bathroom, came straight out, and went downstairs. That was the last I saw of him. He never came up to the top of the house, either to look for Mummy or to say goodnight to me. I was surprised to see Daddy there that night. That's what's happening in the home. Let's return to Lady Lucan, again from Dominic Dunn. Veronica Lucan knew the plumber's arms. She often bought her cigarettes there. It was 9.50 p.m. when she burst into the pub, looking at the ten customers at the bar like an apparition, wearing a nightdress on a November evening with blood pouring from the wounds on her head. He's murdered my nanny, Lady Lucan screamed at the entrance. Help me, help me. I've just escaped from being murdered. With that, she became hysterical. Derek Whitehouse, the assistant manager of the Plumber's Arms, was on duty that night. He helped the distraught woman to a bench and tried to stop the bleeding. He called the police and he called an ambulance. He described Lady Lucan as, quote, covered with blood from head to toe, unquote. There were seven wounds between the top of her head and her hairline on the right side of her forehead. The inside of her mouth was badly cut. Veronica will be treated. She will receive medical attention and survive this attack. Her husband, perhaps surprised by the turn of events, does not bestow the cruelty to Veronica as shown in his first, far more savage attack of Sandro Rivet. Perhaps Lucan has lost his nerve. Perhaps he has changed into desperation mode and is now looking for a way to turn this game around. Lucan doesn't anticipate murdering the wrong person. Murder was certainly in the works. It was his plan. He showed up with his stick covered in sticky plasters. But this entire night has turned on Lucky. Lucky is lucky no more. Not only has he murdered the wrong woman, the woman he wanted to kill, the death that would have solved his problems, has now taken off in an attempt to rescue herself. What had done right, once again, she had bested her husband. 
Time is now of the essence as Lucky Lucan is assembling a new plan. From Dominic Dunn, by the time the police arrived at 46 Lower Belgrave Street, at more or less the same time that Lord Lucan's guests were arriving at the Claremont Club from the theater to meet him for supper, they found a pool of blood on the kitchen floor, bloodstains on the wallpaper of the staircase, three shocked children on an upper floor, and a dead woman stuffed in a canvas bag in the basement. There was no sign of Lord Lucan. He did not return to his apartment on Elizabeth Street. His money, wallet, watch, and credit cards were found there. He had rung the doorbell of a woman named Madeline Florman in nearby Eaton Square, but Mrs. Florman, not knowing who it was, was afraid to open her door at night. Later, blood was found on her doorstep. It was washed off the next day by Dominic Elwes. Lucan is known to have made two telephone calls in London that night, the first to Mrs. Florman, shortly after knocking on her door. He did not identify himself, but she recognized his voice. She said his remarks were incoherent. The second call was to his mother, the dowager Lady Lucan, to tell her there had been a quote-unquote terrible accident in the house and to ask her to go there and get the children. Neither call was made from a telephone booth or through an operator, and the person who allowed him to use his telephone has never come forward. To this day, nearly twenty years later, only one person has admitted seeing him that night, and her story was then, and remains today, sketchy. Her name was Susan Maxwell Scott, and she was the wife of Ian Maxwell Scott, a friend of Lucan's, another gambler, the manager of the Claremont Club, and a cousin of the Duke of Norfolk. Susan Maxwell Scott was the daughter of a prominent lawyer, Sir Andrew Clark QC, and a lawyer herself, although she never practiced her profession. The Maxwell Scotts lived in Uckfield in Sussex, 44 miles from London. The town of Uckfield is 15 miles from New Haven, a point of departure for the ferry to Dieppe in France. Lucan arrived at Mrs. Maxwell Scott's store in the borrowed Ford, still wearing his blood-stained clothes at about 11 o'clock. He rang the bell. She called out from upstairs and asked who it was. He identified himself and she let him in. She said he was in an upset state. He told her that he happened to walk by his house on Lower Belgrave Street that evening on his way to his apartment to dress for dinner. He said he glanced in the basement window and saw a man attacking his wife. He said he entered the house with his latch key and slipped in a pool of blood. Then the man, whom he described only as large, ran off. He said his wife accused him of having hired the man to kill her. Susan Maxwell Scott later said she believed this story. Lucan had several drinks at the Maxwell Scott house and wrote two letters to his friend Bill Shand Kidd, who was married to Lady Lucan's sister, Christina. One of these letters includes the text. The most ghastly circumstance arose tonight, which I have described briefly to my mother 
when I interrupted the fight at Lower Belgrave Street and the man left. Veronica accused me of having hired him. I took her upstairs and sent Frances up to bed and tried to clean her up. She lay doggo for a bit, and when I was in the bathroom, left the house. The circumstantial evidence is strong in that V will say it was all my doing. I will also lie doggo for a bit, but I am only concerned for the children. If you can manage it, I want them to live with you. Couts, trustees, St. Martin's Lane, parentheses, Mr. Wall will handle school fees. V has demonstrated her hatred for me in the past and would do anything to see me accused. For George and Francis to go through life knowing their father has stood in the dock for attempted murder would be too much for them. When they are old enough to understand, explain to them the dream of paranoia and look after them. To lie doggo is an English expression meaning to drop out of sight, lie low, remain unseen. From the beginning, Lucan's version of what had happened at 46 Lower Belgrave Street had a bogus ring to it. It sounded like a story he had made up on the drive down to Uckfield and tried out on Susan Maxwell Scott before writing it to Bill Shand Kidd. In order to see what he claimed to have seen as he walked by the house, his wife being attacked by an intruder, he would have had to lie down on the sidewalk, and even then, the view into the kitchen would not have been a clear one. Also, Lady Lucan was not in the kitchen at any time during the murder. Only Sandra Rivet was. Not a drop of Lady Lucan's blood was found in the kitchen. Lucan also made at least one telephone call from the Maxwell Scott house to his mother, the Dowager Countess, to inquire about his children. After his earlier call, the Dowager had gone to the Lucan house by taxi. The police were already there. She told them that her daughter-in-law was a manic depressive and had been described in court as dangerous to the children. She called her daughter-in-law's sister, Christina Shandkid, to tell her that her sister was in the hospital and reported that Mrs. Shandkid had replied, has she attempted to kill herself again? By the time of Lucan's second call to his mother from Mrs. Maxwell Scott's house, she had returned home with the Lucan children and a policeman. She said that the officer was in the house with her and asked her son if he wanted to talk to him. He told her to tell the police that he would call them in the morning, a message she passed on. Lucan sealed the letters with the back of his hand, leaving blood on both, and asked Mrs. Maxwell Scott if she would mail them for him. He also asked her for sleeping pills. She found four Valiums and gave them to him. He declined her invitation to spend the night. I must get back and sort things out, she said, he said. I must find out what that bitch has done to me. He left her house at 1.15 a.m. Goodbye, Susie, thank you, he said. Mrs. Maxwell Scott never saw him again. In the morning, she sent one of her children to the end of her drive to post the letters Lucan had written. She did not find the late-night visit significant enough to warrant reporting it to the police for 48 hours, although the story of the murder and the missing Earl 
was immediately national news. I saw no reason to, she said at the time. And here it begins, the disappearance of Lord Lucky Lucan. Is there a cover-up? It's impossible to know what telephones are ringing in the upper-crust country house party set that night with friends, with lovers, with enemies who have known each other since those long-ago eaten days. By the following morning, November 8th, 1974, the morning papers come out and the headlines are scandalous. Murder, missing Earl, and Lucan is gone like the wind. The borrowed blue Ford is found in the port town of New Haven, near the river, which will get you to the ferry to cross the English Channel. In the boot of that borrowed car is a bottle of vodka and another lead pipe wrapped in sticky plasters. New Haven is where Lucan has had his boat docked. No boat is missing from the port. Maybe an obvious clue to be left there, perhaps a red herring. Again, in New Haven, there is also a ferry that will get you straight out of New Haven to France. From there, there are many different escape ports. And here begins the mystery. Where does Lord Lucan, whose luck has absolutely run out, disappear to? A lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts, a lot of possibilities, but nothing has ever been proven. We will explore some of those possibilities, as well as the immediate aftermath of the murder and Lucan's disappearance within the next episode of Done and Done. Thanks everybody for joining me for this one. Until I see you on the next, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com you can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.